Hello, I'm Hashem Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations, featuring entrepreneurs from the world of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm joined on today's episode by Richard Windsor, who is an independent research producer specializing in the digital and mobile ecosystem and the founder of Radio Free Mobile. Richard spent 11 years as a sell-side analyst at Nomura Securities, where he focused on equity coverage of the global technology sector. He founded Radio Free Mobile as a way to continue his work providing research and analysis to his clients. The name was inspired by Radio Free Europe, which was a station that would broadcast the voice of freedom, as it was called, during the Cold War. Richard didn't just want to be at the forefront of research analysis, but he believed in the freedom to tell his clients exactly what he thought, unlike the shackles he felt when producing research during his corporate life. RFM aims to, quote, entertain as well as inform, unquote. I grilled Richard on a number of topics, from his business model to his views on the tech landscape, the companies dominating the sector, the current circumstances surrounding big tech, such as the Senate hearings in the U.S., before doing a deep dive into a number of business models. We discussed TikTok, which frankly fascinates me, and the implications of a takeover by Microsoft. We discussed cloud kitchens and a lot more. Now, I'm not exactly a tech expert, but I'm definitely an enthusiast, and I invest in the sector, both in public and private early-stage companies. So I was delighted to have this conversation with Richard, which I found highly informative and in many ways eye-opening. So when I started to educate myself, um, what I found is I started gravitating towards models like yours, where I was getting a somewhat curated newsletter or daily or some sort of report. Typically, I had no choice about what I was getting. So I was getting just the point of view of the author. And I found myself now having a collection of those curated reports, whether they're dailies or weeklies or monthlies. And that's really my primary um, source of, of education, so to speak. Um, I find many of them on Twitter. That works for me because also people like yourself. So you are one of those people that I found on Twitter. Someone recommended you very highly and I went and clicked on it and on your Twitter feed and then I found your report, etc. and I subscribed. So this model, and I'm sure I'm not the only one doing this. So this model is, I think, becoming more prevalent when you're seeing, uh, I'm talking at the individual level now, individuals yes. gravitating towards independent analysts or experts in, in some capacity, either covering a particular sector like yourself or covering broadly sort of a more you know, business spectrum. Yeah, so, so part of that, see, and I think that has happened for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is, is that what happened uh, following 2008 was very heavy regulation of the banking sector. And the net result of that has been is, is that the revenue available to pay for research on the sell side has fallen by about 85% and is still falling even today. 100%. That was basically meant what's happened is that all the expensive, experienced people who've been kicking around for a while, who had actually seen a couple of cycles, were forced out of the business. So one of the things we found was, is that also what's happened is, is that there's been a, and it's through no fault of the people who are still in it, because of the lower budget available for research, the quality of that research has fallen massively, which makes it easier to compete as an independent. The second thing that's happened is the much wider prevalence of smartphones. And because of the increased prevalence of 
um, digital information and the ease of distributing it also makes it much easier for an independent to get out there and to get in front of people. And that's those two things together, I think, is actually what's contributed to an uh, increasing number of people doing independent research. Now, I followed that exactly what you just said for a while, and I was just sort of a bit interested into the business mo- in the business model. And um, I see two different models. I mean, there's sort of a B2C model, if you will, uh, which targets people like myself, uh, yeah. the Ben Thompsons of the world, Sir Decory, and, and a few others that are very popular. And they seem to be able to make a living off that, where they charge us as a consumer a small monthly fee, typically, or an annual fee. Um, and then they have enough subscribers that they're able to make a living out of it. And then there are, there's a second model, seemingly, which is a model like yours, if I understand it correctly, which is a bit of a combo. So you have sort of this, this daily teaser uh, newsletter, which people like myself can receive for free. But then you have a number of tiers, primarily seemingly targeting B2B, so corporations that are at obviously a higher fee, and you offer them many more things with it. So it's like a, you know, a plus. Uh, radio free, you know, plus plus version. Um, why did you decide to go for that model? If, if I described it correctly. Um, well, I, I, to be honest with you, it was, there was a lot of trial and error that want, went on in the early days. Um, the downside of the newsletter business model is, and I've toyed with it. Um, I've thought about it. Is is that you need a serious amount of volume to make, uh, you know, to, to make it worthwhile. And that's quite, that is actually very difficult to achieve. And Ben Thompson, he's good, and he's been around a long time doing this, and he's very well known. And there's not um, many like him that have made it work. Exactly. It's very, very difficult to make that work. Um, and so what I found was, I, my starting point was, is I was actually selling individual pieces of research. Um, and what I found was, is that while that was okay, um, what I was doing is I was selling those research and then sort of doing consultancy on the back of that research. And one thing I found was it was very, very lumpy. So, you know, you'd have a, you, you could have one month that was absolutely fantastic and then nothing for six months. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that other than it gives you no visibility. Yeah. So, you know, when someone turns up in month four and says, yeah, I've been paid for six weeks, do you want a job? You don't know what to do. Whereas what I went for, um, and it kind of, I kind of fell into it by trial and error is the way it works is um, the research product, think about it as a big cake. Uh, the, the daily that you've been getting is the icing on that cake, which gives you an indication of how the product thinks, what kind of its opinions are. But if you actually want the cake itself, which is, you know, the real meat and the evidence that sits behind all of these uh, views and opinions that, that we have, you need to subscribe to the product. And the best way of doing that is basically it's an annual subscription-based product, which is you pay one fee for the year and you get everything for the year plus an allocation of time dedicated to you for other any kind of other project you think. And we've done, I do all sorts of things. It's like do executive teach-ins, we do briefings, we do webinars, we do investment due diligence, we do strategic assessment, we do product roadmap, strategy, all that kind of things that sort of kind of like tied to the research product that people could use to develop their products, their strategy, their thinking, and so on and so forth. And what's the profile of a typical customer that seeks that product? Um, in my case, it's pretty much large cap technology. Um, globally? Been, yes, globally. I mean, almost all my revenues come from the United States. 
the vast majority of my customers have a market capitalization of over $20 billion. Um, and so from that perspective, um, you know, that's, it's a nice position to be in because that product has a relatively high selling price, which means you don't have to have that many customers in order to, 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 to make the business model work very well. And do, do you get any customers that come sort of through the daily newsletter? In other words, it lands in their yeah. inbox and then they're like, well, I actually happen to run a large company and now I want your full stack. Yeah, so let me tell you, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the daily is actually, that's exactly what it is. It's, I, I consider it the two hours or so I spend writing the daily every day. I consider that to be like my, my allocation to marketing. Um, other than yeah, one, one of, which I'm not on the road at all. But the, the, the process is very simple. is You meet someone, you get introduced to someone, so on and so forth, uh, by someone else. You sit down with them, you meet them, and then you say, would you like to take the daily? And they go, okay, all right, fine, yeah. Fine, have another daily, we'll see where we go. Then you come back four months later and the conversation is, oh yeah, we love it, what else you got? I think it's, it's, it's phenomenal and congratulations. I mean, the reason Thank I love it is, to me at the end of the day, whenever in any business, when you see quality prevailing, and I think the testament to that is people are willing to pay for it, frankly, that's always a great thing. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Um, now, just to add one more piece to this puzzle and then we'll move on to your views. Uh, you also invest yourself? Um, yes, not, not actively, I have to admit. Okay. Um, but I take long-term long strategic positions, yes. You usually, I mean, and, and lately it's been more sort of saying, I would not own this. We'll talk about this in a minute. But um, <laughs> when you do own something, do you actually uh, you know, announce it or do you keep those sort of private in terms of what you, where you invest? Because some, can some do both? It's, it's no big secret. Um, if I actually own something, I'll, I, I will write it down. Um, okay. To be honest, I have, what I haven't done much or very uh, at all is direct investing, you know, actually buying the, the, the direct equities themselves. It's been more where I've actually taken big investment decisions for my own portfolios. It's been much more around the actual asset allocation of okay. where it goes. Okay. So not too many direct positions? No, very few, in fact. Okay, which brings us to one elephant in the room that we spoke about the other day, which was Amazon. We'll start with that. That's always fun. And you mentioned to me that you, you, there was a period of about a week when COVID really, whether it's in March, I think, or 10 days, something like that. Yeah, about two weeks, I think. Two weeks. Okay, well, I'm being, I'm being harsh. There was a period of two weeks where you would have owned Amazon before it went back to where it is now. Let's sort of unpack a little bit, uh, and we're going to talk about a few companies that I think will be fun. Clearly, many of those companies certainly in the last couple of years, have defied gravity in terms of the valuation, in terms of the richness of that valuation, presumably. People have different views. Uh, maybe an explanation, I want to hear your view, is that many of them start in a sector and wind up being in mul multiple sectors. When you mm -hmm. are doing a typical, you know, this kind of cash flow, any other analysis of the company, you are looking at what they're selling currently. Now, Amazon, which is a case in point, is a company that converted a number of its um, cost drivers into revenue lines over decades. And that, mm -hmm. has, that, has, that has been a phenomenal success. So if I'm looking at Amazon day one, two, and three, they are selling books, they're selling goods, et cetera. I can do my DCF based on that, come to valuation. Amazon all of a sudden goes to the cloud. That's a whole different revenue line, huge market, et cetera. How do you manage that, that, that tension? Because you can only put a price tag on what they have today, 
But you know that some of them, Amazon, a great case in point, is very, very innovative. So maybe this valuation is supported by a potential stream that's in the future that we don't know anything about yet. Yeah, you, yes, you can make that argument. And where I get wary of that argument, and I'll come back to Amazon specifically in a minute, is because that's exactly the same argument everybody trotted out in 99 and 2000 <laughs> with all those internet stocks. Um, the way I look at it, I'm a value-based investor. I always have been a value-based investor. And the thing about it is, is that if you do a DCA, if you, when you do a DCA, if you are actually valuing future cash flows and discounting them to their current value. The issue with Amazon is, um, from my perspective, as a value-oriented investor, is this company has a long habit of not making any money at all. And the problem with that is, quite simply, is that you know a value-oriented investment basically means is that a company needs to make money to have any value. If a, if a company never makes money, its value is zero. It has no value or from an equity perspective. But it has a positive cash flow. Um, yes, Amazon's cash flow is yes. has, has been good from that perspective. Yes, it has been very good. So that's valuable. Uh, it is valuable. I just don't think it's worth the 1.6 trillion uh, that it's that it's worth today. The problem is, and again, you see the way the way I would also look at it from a valuation perspective is, let's just say there is a new revenue stream for Amazon that is five years away that nobody knows anything about. Should that really be priced into a stock today? You know, the market is supposed to price in the available information that exists. One hundred percent, and I agree with you on the theoretical kind of framework. The reality of it is. What we've seen in a number of those stocks is, is exactly that, right? Two things. One is the point you made, the first point, which, I mean, I'll push back here a little bit and I would just take, take the counter argument. I would say, well, Amazon could have been much more profitable much earlier. It just keeps investing. Um, and therefore, the bottom line has been always, and, and investors, and Amazon especially, I mean, it's a very, very much of a unique case. Investors over time learned to celebrate that. They didn't always understand the stock. Amazon was stalled as a stock price performance for many years because investors punished it for exactly what you've said. But then yes. that changed, and today it's been celebrated. Um, so I'm just saying, because I've, I've, I see both sides of the argument. I mean, I'm like you, trained to think of it from a valuation perspective, even if I'm not an analyst. As a buy-side investor, that's certainly how I would buy things. But I also see that it, it, it frankly means that many analysts would miss the mark for many, many years and miss out on a huge amount of value. I am the first person to admit that I've got Amazon catastrophically wrong. Yeah. Absolutely, totally wrong. Um, be simply because it has been an absolute stellar share price performer and I've hated it all the way up from an investment <laughs> because it doesn't make any money and I've got that completely wrong. What that really means is, is you know, Amazon... Amazon, in many ways, is a momentum thematic, sentiment-driven share. Um, and the, underneath, underneath the company, so really the, the issue is, is that what is the company assuming in the long run in order to hold up a valuation of 1.6 trillion? And the answer, the answer basically is an awful lot. But that's not how the market is looking at it. The market is, right now is looking at Amazon, the number of these other stocks of, where the hell am I going to invest? The only thing I know that's happening is everyone's stuck at home. So let's just buy them and hope for the best. Yeah, um, and tech has become the new treasuries in a sense. It's a, yes. It oh, feels safe. They have cash. 
Uh, they're growing very fast. It seems a hell of a lot safer than buying GM and certainly than buying U.S. Treasuries, which give you well, almost zero yield. US, U.S. Treasuries are not yielding you anything at all. Exactly. It's even exactly. worth anything. So. so the flight to quality has moved to tech, in, and that's part of the explanation. Yes, and, that, and that's, from Scary. a sentiment perspective, you, I can totally get behind that. But when also a flight to quality is also supposed to mean is there's a lot of fundamentals down there that basically means if things go catastrophically wrong, the share price won't collapse. Now, if things do go catastrophically wrong at Netflix, for example, or Tesla, the share price will collapse. So um, it's more about, it's, I, I think personally, it's more about a sentiment one-way driven it's a one-way trade, if you like, on the stay-at-home. This is the only place we could think of that actually is going to grow revenues through the pandemic because economic visibility right now is absolute zero. Um, rather than um, you could actually make a fundamental argument that this is a, a, a flight to um, you know, a safe haven, so to speak. Yeah, safe. It's, it's fascinating to me because, I, as I said, I see both sides of the argument. And I, I myself, depending on the name on the stock, go both ways, can go either way. Um, you know, exactly the case you just met, someone like Scott Galloway, who's not, who's not a, a research analyst, but obviously has views and sort of is a marketing, marketing um, professor, if you will. Mm-hmm. When he spoke about Amazon, I think a couple of months ago on his podcast, and he was saying, well, wait till they go into government because they've built that massive fulfillment and logistics behemoth. And now, you know, if you're looking at vaccinations, things like that, why wouldn't Amazon do that? And then he looks at the size of the government market and you get a big T ahead of it. And then people are like, oh my God, well, if they get just 1% of that. So that's, that's the conversation, yeah. similar conversation with Apple and health, you know, watches yes. are just to start. And if they tackle even 2% of the health market, healthcare market, and those are very, I agree with you, very difficult conversations because you're purely speculating. And I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, you know, the, the, for me, the, mo- the most interesting uh, one for Amazon is grocery. That's the, that's the big one. It's a $4 trillion market in the United States. Well, they're in it already. Uh, and they're in it already. Now, it's interesting. You see, I actually, I actually view the Whole Foods acquisition as Amazon bought a customer. Because the problem you have with grocery, because when you sell non-perishables, um, like Amazon was doing before, they can sit in the warehouse for a few weeks, no big deal. The problem you have when you start selling groceries, you've got to shift it within a certain period of time. So how can you manage to hang on to a certain number of, you have to have a certain range of products available at any one point in time. How can you manage the risk of the stuff perishing? What you do is you buy Whole Foods because you know what that gives you. It gives you a guaranteed amount of turnover all of the time so that you could then start to look at being much, much more aggressive in terms of coming into the online grocery business. Quite frankly, you know, the pandemic has... Has, has accelerated that significantly. It's fascinating. I mean, I'll just share a personal anecdote which just tells you something about Amazon. In 99 slash 2000, I worked for um, a dot-com company uh, called Cosmo.com. And Cosmo with a Z. And Cosmo.com, well, I mean, started as a DVD delivery model, but then was delivering everything under an hour. So they were, they were solving the last mile. Amazon was our largest investor. They came Series B. This was 2000. Even then they saw the value in trying to resolve the last mile. Cosmo went bankrupt eventually, and I went to business school, that's a different story. But um, <laughs> that was essentially Amazon Prime. 
And that was in 2000. So just to give, and it was the same guys that are still there now, Jeff Byrne and so on and so forth. So it just gives you a sense. And of course, for many years later, nothing happened, but they were working on it. So what I have been fascinated by is clearly between, you know, the, the founder, between Jeff Bezos and his lieutenants, there have been, they have these theses and they take their time working on them, but they're incredibly ahead of the curve in terms of developing new markets and thinking about solutions. Yes. I'm, from my perspective, the way I sum up Amazon is very simple, which is the old adage of great company, bad stock. Yeah, fair enough. Time that's, will tell. That, that's me. I mean, I've, and I've been wrong. So Time will <laughs> take tell. that with a pinch of salt. So when you're looking today uh, at technology at large, in terms of your own coverage, are you following particular themes or is it what your customers are asking you to cover? I mean, how do you decide on what to write, who to write about? And obviously you're following earnings as well. Yes. Yeah, so basically what I do is the, the research part I do, we, um, I actually sit with a foot in two camps, which is um, as far as most people are concerned, there's two types of research available. So there's the financial research that I used to do, and then there's industry research, which is what much more focused on the top line and, and some of the, the bigger theme items. I actually kind of do both because I used to sit on the, on the sales side, and now I sit more on the industry side. Sure. And so I span both of those camps. Um, the way it all started was quite simple. Back, back in 2012, um, what I, when I founded the company, what I realized quite quickly was is everyone was using this word ecosystem, mm -hmm. but no one could tell you what it meant. Mm -hmm. So if you put your hand up, you know, Cisco would bang on endlessly about their ecosystem. If you put your hand up and go, uh, what does that mean? They, they would be dumbfounded. So I figured there was space in the market that helps people to understand what the digital ecosystem is and how, most importantly, how you understand it, how you categorize it, how you understand the strategies and how people make money. Um, and what we do is we created a way to understand Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, Qualcomm, Samsung, all of these companies the big ones. Yeah. in the same context. Interesting. In the same context so that you can really compare them against each other. And one of, uh, one of the strangest insights I'll give you is that my contention is and has been for many years is that Apple and Google do exactly the same thing. They just monetize it in completely different ways, which is why they are actually competing directly head to head in most of, most, most, most of the global markets. Are you kind of referring to the Ben Thompson kind of aggregator and platform concept or are we talking about something else in terms of your framework? This, this is derived straight from the research. So um, let, let, me, let, me give, let me give you an example. Uh, let me explain how, 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 that, how that thinking comes around. So what does Apple do? So if I took an Apple device and I stripped off the iOS software and I loaded it with Android, a standard Android with Google's ecosystem on it, the price of that handset would probably fall by about 50%. Okay. So what is the 50% extra price going towards? It's going towards people paying for access to the Apple ecosystem. When we mean ecosystem, the ecosystem is a digital experience that holds together all of the experiences that people use to live, live their digital lives. That's and they're curating it as well. Yes. To a, to, 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 to a degree. Um, you know, because Apple, Apple has some of their own services, but then also, of course, they are completely dependent on third-party developers to enrich the ecosystem. And most importantly of all, provide that really long tail. Now, if you look at, so basically a large part of Apple's profits comes from Apple monetizing its ecosystem. Yeah, okay? services, sure. Through, through hardware, through hardware. Sure. 
you then look at um, not necessarily the services that it sells, but just people pay that because services people pay extra for those services. Sure. It's it's the premium price that people pay to get access to Apple. Now, if you look at Google, what does Google do? Google characterizes the internet and then basically sells targeted, targeted advertising on the back of, the, of its understanding of what people do. What is Google actually What they're doing is they've created an ecosystem. They give you the ecosystem for free and you enter into an implicit bargain or explicit bargain with Google. That I will consume your advertising in return for these services. So effectively, where Apple does it, Apple does it, does the same thing by selling a device at a premium. And Google does it simply by having, by selling you, by selling your data to advertisers in order and, and for which you are happy to consume the advertising in order to get access to their services. So actually, they're doing exactly the same thing. It's just the methodology of that monetization is very different. So two questions here. Question number one, in terms of Google, as consumer behavior shifts and many of us no longer go to that search box as a first step, and perhaps go to um, Instagram, perhaps go to um, you know, Facebook, um, Amazon even, would that hurt Google over time because you're no longer kind of that first entry point? That's one of the key risks. That is one of the key risks that Google runs. Now, and a lot of this comes down to, and then you, then now you start to come close to another subject that we do in great detail, which is artificial intelligence. And again, we started doing artificial intelligence in 2016, and we started it because everyone was talking about it, but no one could tell you what it was. So we did this, we, we rinse and repeat the same strategy, so to speak, that we did with the ecosystem. Um, the risks are basically, if you're looking for a specific product, to buy, then maybe some people do go to Amazon, particularly because Amazon will give you good price discovery. Sure. However, uh, where Amazon is really, the, 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 what Google is very, very good at is working out what it was you were really looking for based on what you typed. True. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a very good example. In Arabic, when you write Arabic words in English, you can often spend, spell them in many, many different ways. Correct. And only Google will get them right. Only Google will know what it is you're looking for. And any other search engine or any other company that's doing some kind of search algorithm will make a complete mess of it. And why? Because Google's artificial intelligence, if you look at Google's artificial intelligence, it's arguably the best in the world by some considerable margin. Uh, and that is why people, and you know, they just did report a down quarter last month, but that's largely because digital advertising in general across the board has taken a hit due to the economic impact of the pandemic. So aside from that, there is still no real sign that revenues from search-based advertising are starting to decline. I think they're slowing for sure because search is becoming more of a mature business and there are other methods of advertising like on social networks or direct advertising and so on and so forth that are growing more quickly. But certainly there is not a lot of evidence out there to suggest that people are stopping to use Google and going to search for something somewhere else. And what about the argument? I mean, this is a big thorny subject, so I'm, I'm kind of hesitant, but I want to touch on it, which has to do with Google and Facebook. And Apple, to some extent, stands on the other side of this, which is the issue of obviously... Um, 
privacy mm-hmm. and the issue of also kind of it's a wild west out there. We can't control what our, uh, what people want. So, I mean, particularly I'm talking about a YouTube here, which is owned by Google, yes. where their argument is similar to Facebook is, you know what, it's a, a, it's a free country and free system and anyone can upload whatever they want. And we can't really spend our time policing this. Apple, apparently, and you know more, more, more about this than me, but on their new phones and new headsets and so on, handsets, sorry, will enable many of us to actually control our privacy settings in a much more explicit way. Um, so that starts sort of an almost stark contracts. And Apple has obviously positioned itself generally uh, from a PR perspective as kind of a, you know, uh, I guess to say pro uh, privacy. privacy. Yeah, exactly. So how do you, and that's a very big subject, but how do you make, what do you make of that? Yes. Now, interestingly, see, Apple loves to get on its high horse about how we are the privacy play. Yes. The beauty part of it is, is that Apple's business model allows it to be the privacy play because they've already clipped your ticket when you, when you, when you bought the device. Correct. So they've already been paid. Now, the way I view this thing is, you know, engagement with Google services, engagement with Facebook services is entirely voluntary. Yes. And so from that perspective, now, there's children, there's all sorts of other people that, you know. Yes. Again, it's an again, but again, I'm, you know, again, my position on that would be is, is that, you know, children, children getting access to inappropriate data on Google services or Facebook services, not really the responsibility of Google or Facebook, but their parents who should be monitoring their activity and, and keeping them safe. It's parental responsibility. Um, now, there have been definite breaches where they have basically said, we will not use your data for this and then gone and done it anyway. Facebook, fa- Facebook, in, Facebook in particular. Or disinformation in politics, as we all know, right? to just plain wrong information that's out there that's been sponsored yeah. on Facebook and they're saying this has nothing to do with us and it's just wrong information, misleading. That's right. And this, this whole comes down to this whole immunity, this whole immunity issue. Um, I think it's section 230 that's currently being exactly. debated in Congress exactly. right now where these platforms all have this unusual immunity, which is if they publish, if they put something on their platform, then they are immune from uh, immune from litigation because they're and they're just hey we're just the pipe we're not we're not responsible for it we're just the pipe so we're letting everybody publishing equally whereas a newspaper and a newspaper has an opinion and they have editorial control so consequently they are responsible for stuff that they publish and they don't have that immunity the question that is out there today and this is where you get into this whole free speech versus hate speech argument and there's a very difficult balance here is to what degree can you police what is called hate speech before you start to limit free speech and therefore you should lose your immunity under section 230 and you basically become a publisher it's a very very difficult question and i don't know what the i don't know what the answer is the interesting thing though is is that people have talked about facebook um oh you know face no one's using facebook anymore and so on and so forth the numbers, the numbers tell a very, exactly. very different story. And obviously, they own they own Instagram and WhatsApp and a number of other assets that are also very, very yeah. popular. So exactly, uh, and the revenues keep growing. And you know, Facebook, in my opinion, will not have an issue with this until the voters start voting, uh, voting with their feet. Um, and I think the last quarter showed that very clearly, where they had you know year over year growth despite this despite the pandemic. And what is your view on the? what you're starting to get from the U.S. Congress and others about breaking some of those 
guys up that they have too much power, stifle innovation, gobble up anyone that comes their way, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, some of the, some of what came out, you know, Mark Zuckerberg writing very clearly that, you know, either uh, Instagram would sell to him or he would kill it, um, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that no one in, on venture capital will ever try to even fund a search company because they know they can't compete with Google, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. What's your view on, on that particular, it's a very broad subject again, but. It's a very, it's a, it's a very difficult one. Um, typically homegrown monopolies are very, very difficult to crack. Um, now you could argue that Facebook is not a homegrown monopoly because it acquired Instagram and it acquired WhatsApp. So one potential remedy could be to force it to split those out. But the actual breakup of uh, Facebook itself might actually be considerably more difficult to achieve because it is it, it, it is effectively a home. But a those home. assets, I mean, and Google and, and, and YouTube, you know, I mean, is there a reason they have to stay together? I mean, some people argue YouTube would be a better company if it was independent from or spun off in terms of value monetization. It, here's the interesting thing, you see, because up until very recently, YouTube was not very well monetized. or That was the general view that YouTube was not very monetized. Well, actually it was because what Google, what Google, if you look at Google's revenues, you look at these activities, we have this thing called the digital life pie. And what the digital life pie is, it is a representation of what users do with their smart devices divided by time. And that gives you a view of what is the addressable market for a digital ecosystem like Google or like Facebook, because this is what, this is what users are doing. What we noticed five years ago was that um, although YouTube was not generating a lot of revenues for Google, it was critical because what was happening is Google was understanding what its users were doing and what they liked and what they watched on YouTube and monetizing that through the search algorithm. Of course, of course. Uh, and, and so from that perspective, um, that's why, and that's still going on today, and that's why if you actually split or force Google to sell YouTube, quite possibly what would happen is, is that you might start to have charging subscription for to get access to YouTube in order for it to sustain itself. In business, at business school, they taught us that a lot of these larger companies, tech or otherwise, are notoriously bad at making acquisitions. And so many of this M&A activity typically is value destructive. Now, these guys, almost all of them, have had a very strong track record. I mean, when you look at Facebook, I mean, WhatsApp and, and Instagram, probably some of the best acquisitions of all time. Um, YouTube, similar, excellent yep. acquisition, both in terms of, you know, um, and, and that brings me to a topic that, that you, you wrote about today, uh, Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft, again, I mean, they actually, I was reminded the other day uh, by reading something on Twitter that they, uh, well, A, had owned uh, a piece of Apple very early on that they sold very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, which would have been a staggering uh, value today. But they also held on to Facebook stock for about 10 years. Yes. And made 10x on their investment. Now, uh, Microsoft is obviously in the news because of TikTok. Mm -hmm. Walk us through your thinking about what's happening here. A, a little bit about your views on TikTok as a standalone company or as part of ByteDance. And then what the rationale for Microsoft is. Because as you rightfully said in your piece, um, Microsoft has largely been outside of the consumer-facing business, maybe the exception of Xbox and a few others. Uh, and it's not consumer-facing, sorry. Um, um, I know what you mean. The one thing I would say generally about acquisitions, though, is certainly with these large tech companies, you never get to really hear about the turkeys. 
So believe you me, Google has done plenty of turkeys. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. We probably hear more about the winners. Um, yes, you because do. many of them are smaller companies or undisclosed or whatever. Fair enough. Yeah, I know. And even, you know, there are, there are several instances where Google has flushed billions of dollars down the drain. So. <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. Um, so coming to TikTok. So what is TikTok? So basically what it is, it is a music-oriented um, video, short video service. Sure. TikTok came, TikTok was created by the acquisition of, by, by ByteDance of a company called Musical.ly. Uh, I think it had about 100 million users at the time. Uh, and it was a service outside of China. Now, why is TikTok so good? And there's a very simple reason for it. ByteDance is not a media company. ByteDance is an artificial intelligence company. And what they've figured out how to do is to create an AI algorithm that is very, very good at understanding what its users like to watch based on their history and the other things that they do. So the reason why TikTok is so successful is when you use it, what happens is it's much better than anything else. It's service, surfacing the videos that you actually want to do. And that's much more difficult than it sounds, simply because, don't forget, this is user-generated content. 100%. And they're phenomenally at it, phenomenally good at it. And that's, that's, where the, that's basically where the value is. Now, this is why data is such an important sticking point, because... In order to make the algorithm do that effectively, you need a ton of data. Correct. So they need access to consumers. Exactly. That's what the fight is all about, is, is we don't want TikTok to operate in the United States because we're frightened that U.S. consumer data is going to go back to China and into the hands of the CCP that will then be used against them or against us. Where do you stand on this? So what's your view on, so people like Ben Thompson, Ben Thompson has come very clearly saying that, yes, that is correct. And you're essentially, this is a proxy for the Chinese government. Yes, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far and say that about ByteDance. The reason being is there's no evidence, there's no clear evidence other than, other than in China, there, are, there is a legal requirement that all big companies have Communist Party members within the ranks and there are committees. So there is always a degree of government influence. Okay. What you'll also find is that any company operating in China could be shut down in five minutes in five minutes at the whim of the government. So as a result of those two things, the, the Chinese government, should it choose to do so, could make ByteDance do anything that it wants. Okay, but what I'm, what I'm trying to understand is if Microsoft, let's just take a, let's assume Microsoft is successful in acquiring uh, TikTok. Okay. Now, yeah. as you said, the value is in that algorithm, that AI algorithm that they have. Now, um, that's coming from ByteDance. So yes. I am buying your U.S. or Australian operations, whatever, a bunch of their operations outside of Asia. But, I mean, if I don't have that algorithm, um, that value, what, we were just, what you've just said, which is how phenomenal they are in figuring out what you want to see, could diminish over time. And that's really the raison d'etre of TikTok. So what am I buying? Exactly, you're exactly on the money with that one. And that's exactly what we wrote today. Um, is what would have to happen is, is that two things would have to happen. Number one, Microsoft would have to, to gain a license to that algorithm. Okay. And then our, Microsoft would have to maintain and evolve that algorithm on its own in order, if it is going to achieve all of the security requirements that the U.S. government is going That's to place on That's a tall order. It. I mean, if they knew how to do it, they would have done it. <laughs> well, um, that's very, that is true. Um, I'm not believing Microsoft. I just think that there's a reason TikTok 
And ByteDance is such a massive, massive success. They figured out something others couldn't. Yes, and that's absolutely right. Um, the one thing Microsoft does have, Microsoft does have a very large AI organization. So it's not impossible that ByteDance points them in the right direction and gives them a few ideas on how to train, how to train it based on the data that it's generating. Um, but again, the risk, the, risk, the risk of this acquisition basically is, is that Microsoft buys it, takes the algorithm, and then the quality of the algorithm degrades, the quality of the service degrades, and then user engagement falls away. That's the risk. That is the real risk of this acquisition. So it is likely more of a financial investment than a strategic one. Like I, I, the, the other guys are, are under pressure, so I'm able to get them at possibly a, a lower price than I would otherwise. Um, and then, you know what, I can basically buy low, uh, sell high or spin off or IPO or whatever. That's the only strategy that makes sense to me. Um, if you look back through history, Microsoft has had a number of goes at creating a digital consumer oriented ecosystem like the one Apple has, like the one Google has, like the one Alibaba has. And it has failed and spent a vast amount of money in the process. The acquisition of Nokia will be, is the, was, was the last one. That was Balmer, I think, at the time. Yes, that's right. Now, um, now it was well, it's well, relatively well known that Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, Far more hated sensible. he hated that transaction. Yeah. And if you look at when he came in, the first thing he basically did was, well, we're not doing this consumer stuff. Let's, let's play to our strengths, move towards the enterprise, de-emphasize um, consumer. And to his credit, it's worked spectacularly well. He's, he's massively increased the market capitalization of Microsoft in the process. However, inside Microsoft, there's still a couple of vestigial bits left over, which is Bing. Bing makes some sense because Bing generates data for the AI organization, so they'll never get rid of Bing. Xbox, what the hell are they doing with Xbox? And Minecraft, um, which is why I've always maintained for the last few years, if someone's actually to make a good offer to Microsoft for either Minecraft or Xbox or both, they, they should, in theory, consider selling it because they are definitely non-core. And I think TikTok would fit into that space. So the way I could see this happening is, is that ByteDance is on the back foot because they're going to get cancelled in the US, which means the value of their business is zero. Um, they'll be willing to negotiate. Microsoft can get a good price. As long as it can keep that AI algorithm going, keep the engagement there, Maybe in a couple of years, they can then IPO it or sell it to private equity for, for a significant return on investment. That's kind of worth it. So that's why I, I, the way I look at it is the way I would describe it is an opportunistic investment by Microsoft. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Um, I have another, I want to shift gears here to something you also wrote about recently, which I follow with a lot of interest given the fact that we have a F&B platform here is Cloud Kitchens. Uh, and mm -hmm. what's happening in, in the world of F&B. Um, what's generally your view on that sector at large? And then is there anyone there that you can recognize? Obviously, not all of them are public companies, but that you feel has had a sensible strategy that can work because it's notoriously a very difficult sector to make work. Last yeah. mile is very, very hard to, to make profitable. What's your view of the sector? And if there's anyone else, any particular company you want to speak about? Yeah, so the way I would, uh, the way I look at this sector is to take a step back from what they do. Um, because you can apply the same thing to things like ride hailing and e-commerce and classifieds and so on and so forth. They're a marketplace. They're a marketplace 
where buyers come to transact and sellers meet where, basically where they meet. Now, the key to a marketplace, um, the problem with the first, the first issue you have as a marketplace is very low barriers to entry. Correct. Now, as a consequence of that, because there are low barriers to entry, it means brutal competition. So, and this is the, so we created this rule in 2015. I created a rule of thumb, which basically describes the economic fundamentals of all of these digital marketplaces, which is in order to make money, you need 60% market share or to be double the size of your nearest competitor. If you can reach that hallowed status, you, you become what's known as the go-to place to do it, which means that's where the buyers are going to go. Also means it's where the sellers are going to go, which means you can charge a little bit more to the buyers and a little bit more to the sellers on both sides, and you can make an awful lot of money. So eBay, you Airbnb, et cetera, the very successful marketplaces. Yes, the best one, actually, the best example of this is actually, ironically, is Craigslist. The reason why I bring up Craigslist is because the user experience is horrible. Correct. Awful user experience. But it, it doesn't matter because everyone goes there. The value is so high. Yes, because that's where you go. Now, that's, what, that's why food delivery, coming back to your original question, has actually been such a bloodbath. It's because what's going on now, you've got so many players all fighting each other with no one being able to really get a bigger, big advantage. And that's why, you know, the recent, the, the recent transaction uh, Uber Eats was going to go through, that would actually give them a significant position. So that's really what you're looking for is you're looking for a company or you're looking for one of the providers that has the prospects to get to that 60% share or double the size of the nearest, uh, nearest competitor in, or, in, or, in, order to, in order to actually make some money. Other than that, you're basically looking at a race to the bottom and a, and a complete bloodbath, quite frankly. Yeah, and it's difficult because you have also regulations, right? Because a lot of these guys are becoming, I mean, so, so I mean, as you said, Uber Eats tried. I mean, Amazon tried with Deliveroo in the UK, and I think it finally passed with COVID or maybe just before because Deliveroo was probably suffering. I'm guessing it's a private company, but it's, it's not, I agree with you, you need to get to that scale. And it's unclear whether the, where the regulators were allowed that scale. Hence, you could have, a bloodbath for a very long time. And I must say, I don't really understand what the regulator's objection is to it, to be frank. Um, quite simply because if they, if you create an effective monopoly and they start charging too high price, you're just stimulating competition. Someone else can come, someone else can start, oh no, we're gonna, we, can, we can come in at a lower price and it's not as if, it's not as if even if you're a monopoly that you can't come in and compete if the monopolist starts to get, it's not like Microsoft had this lock on the operating system on a PC or Apple's lock on the iOS ecosystem. These are real big barriers, but something like this, the barriers still remain very low. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I would imagine though, and you know, running our own restaurant, we've had this experience is what happened with COVID didn't help where many sure. restaurants which hire, employ a lot of people were suffering and they felt that the aggregators, instead of understandably so, and the aggregators have a business model they have to defend, but were not lowering their commissions and um, they were the only game in town. So a restaurant that used to de depend on delivery as 10% of revenue, all of a sudden its entire revenue base is dependent on delivery. They don't have their own distribution direct channel, D2C. They go through Deliveroo, Uber Eats, et cetera. And those guys were still charging 30, in some case 35, let's say between 20 and 35%. I think that created a big backlash and I agree with you. It's not necessarily a regulatory issue, but probably I'm guessing again, 
um, put a really bad taste in people's mouths in terms of that they are strong arming smaller businesses. That probably didn't help. I, I, I'm sure it didn't help. Although you know, you could you could equally say is if you know if they're charging forty percent, arguably you know the small businesses should club together and do their own, and create their own. I understand. I understand. It's difficult to do that, but that's arguably where it would go, right? I think they are, and and there are a number of attempts to do that. But as you well know, in a marketplace, the supply was always on these platforms. And, and, you know, for all of us, I mean, I know perfectly well how to go to my own restaurant and, and click on one button on our Instagram feed and order directly. And yet I find myself going to Deliveroo because the user experience is so, you know what I mean? Automatic. It's so, the go-to place. That's right. Go-to place. So anyway, that's, I think that that's, that's, that's the power of the marketplace. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Have a good rest of week. You too. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations. This episode was hosted by me, Hesham Montasser, and produced by Chirag Desai. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts as it really helps other people discover the show. You can stay in touch with us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE and listen to the show on any of your favorite podcast players. Or you can listen to it on our website at thelighthouse.ee slash podcast. We'll see you in two weeks.